a young uh, Jewish lady writes this in a recent edition of the magazine Chosen. The best china and silver are carefully placed on the table ready for the special meal. Two tall white candles are burning on either side of an arrangement of spring flowers. Set before my father is a plate with pieces of matzah, the unleavened bread covered with a cloth that I embroidered as a young girl. My family is sitting around the table waiting to begin the cedar, the Passover meal. As they join other Jewish families in commemorating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, everything appears the same as it did the previous 19 years. Only one thing is different. I am. This year, I am set apart from my family. Unlike them, I am now a believer in Jesus, the Messiah. Memories flood me of previous years. As the youngest child present, I was the one to begin our meal. I would ask a series of questions summarized by one main question. Why is it that this night is different from all other nights? And my father would begin the answer. We were slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt, and the eternal God brought us forth thence with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Well, they are celebrating an incident that we read about here in the 11th and 12th chapters of Exodus, the Passover. God has been sending plagues on the land of Egypt. He had commanded Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh had said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And Moses said, Well, the Lord will show you who he is. He is the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And uh, he will turn the Nile River into blood, or he will send frogs, or he will send locusts. He will cause it to be dark, thick darkness during the day. And finally, the last plague was the angel of death, the destroyer, would pass through the land. In chapter 11, verse 4, it says, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beast. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. Well, God had made a provision, though, for his people. He would put a difference, verse 7. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. He had made provision for them to escape this destroying angel. Uh, the procedure, they were to select a lamb on a particular day, and then they were to uh, wait a period of time and then kill that lamb everyone bringing their lamb to a central place, killing it, a lamb for a household, then taking it back, striking the blood on the doorpost, and uh, going inside, roasting the lamb, eating it that evening with their shoes on their feet, their loins girded, their staff in the hand, ready to travel. 
That was the procedure they were to follow. And the promise was, in uh, reference to protecting them or delivering them from death, in verse 13 of chapter 12, the blood shall be to you for a token, a sign, upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, says God, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. That was a promise. Deliverance from death and deliverance from bondage. Back in chapter 11, verse 8, Moses says to Pharaoh, And all these thy servants, Pharaoh, shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out and all the people that follow thee. And after that I will go out. Pharaoh is infuriated and drives Moses out when he makes that announcement. He went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Well, that was the promise. What happened? Chapter 12, verse 28. The children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat upon his throne to the firstborn of the captain that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth. From among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, go and serve the Lord, as you've said. Take your flocks and your herbs, your herds, as you've said, and be gone and bless me also. Pray for me. And uh, they go out that night, set free from bondage. Well, there's a parallel designed by God in all of this. Egypt, they're in bondage. Judgment is hanging over everyone's head in Egypt. Egypt pictures for us, designed by God, a picture drawn in human history, the condition man is in by nature before we become Christians. We're in bondage. We're in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to Pharaoh, Satan. Guilt is hanging over our head and God's judgment, the destroying angel, is on his way. God has provided a way to escape that judgment and go to the promised land of heaven. And the way is through the Lamb's blood protecting us, the Lamb picturing the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Lamb. One day, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. That was 1,400 years later. Or uh, Paul, writing about uh, these things, says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So we can see that, in general, the parallel that God designed. In specific, let's look a little more carefully at the parallel. Uh, notice the shift in the calendar in verse 2 of chapter 12. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Actually, it was the seventh month that they were to do this, but 
Now it becomes the first month because when you become a Christian, when you're delivered from bondage and from guilt, you start a new life. You're a new creation. Uh, you have true life for the first time. Prior to then, you were really dead spiritually. And you've passed from death unto life. Uh, Jesus said uh, in John three thirty six, He that believeth on me, uh, it says, uh, he has everlasting life. But he that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or over in 1 John chapter 5, John said, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. The beginning of life when you become a Christian. Again, uh, the notice the selection of the Lamb in verse 5 of chapter 12. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Without blemish because Jesus would be sinless. Uh, the lamb was to be chosen on the tenth day of the month and kept until the fourteenth day and then sacrificed on the fourteenth day. Verse 6, you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Kill it because the lamb's blood was being shed to remove the guilt of the person in the house that it was substituting for. That person deserved to die. We all deserve to die. We're sinners. The wages of sin is death. But God would allow our sin to be put on the innocent third party, the guiltless lamb, Jesus. And would punish him in our stead. And so his blood had to be shed. Now, Jesus didn't just have to die. He had to go through that second death, which is the ultimate punishment of sin. And when he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was, he was undergoing something far more than physical death. He was undergoing damnation. He was undergoing the wrath of God in his soul. He was experiencing crucifixion, but he was experiencing something far worse than crucifixion. As our guilt was laid upon him. Isaiah chapter 53, some 700 years later, Isaiah the prophet, speaking of the Messiah, says that he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He'll be rejected and despised by men. But it says uh, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord will lay on him, this coming Messiah, the guilt of us all, the iniquity of us all. That God would make his soul an offering for our sin. And uh, it goes on to speak about he'll make his death with wicked men and be buried in a rich man's tomb and then he will rise or prolong his days and so on. A prophecy. But notice the heart of that prophecy. He was substituting for us. Our guilt placed on him. Uh, in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers, Paul and Peter, comment on that, Paul will say, uh, he made him, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Peter will say it like this. He'll say, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Or he says, you weren't redeemed with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now you get the concept of the substitutionary atonement. Why did Christ die? He took our guilt. Why did God require this? Because God is holy, and God has to be consistent with himself. God can't just say, well, it's, it's okay that all of you sinned and rebelled against me. We'll just overlook that. God can't. Is anything God can't do? Yes. God can't lie. God can't be unholy. God can't be unjust. He can't be inconsistent with his own nature. And uh, so if he's going to forgive men, it has to be done in a way that doesn't violate his principles. A father wrestles with this when his son is rebellious. Here's a father whose son is rebellious, and he wants to forgive that son and, and manifest love toward that son, but he has to do it in a way that's consistent with right. He can't just overlook what the son's done. Well, that was the same problem God had for, with us. And that's, God took our punishment upon himself in the person of his son. That's the great doctrine of the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, that doctrine is not real popular in liberal theological circles. Uh, here's an interesting book that was written recently, Evangelical Essentials. It's written by a liberal theologian in England. David Edwards, a liberal minister. He does an interesting thing. He takes the writings of John Stott, who would be an evangelical like I am, and uh, he takes Stott's writings and he takes certain categories like the scriptures, the death of Christ, uh, the miracles, and, and he sets forth Stott's position from his writings. Then he gives his critique of that as a liberal theologian, where he believes Stott is wrong, what he himself believes. And then he lets John Stott answer each of his objections. It's interesting to see how the liberal theologian handles the death of Christ. What does he say about this idea of the substitutionary atonement and of this being a picture of that? Well, he puts it like this. He says, it is startling to read in Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, without discussion, that throughout Egypt, before the exodus of Israel, the firstborn son in each house was spared by God only if a lamb was slain in its place. It's amazing, he says, that Stott takes this at face value, as if it really happened that way. Oh, well, we pick up his view towards Scripture, right? Okay. Uh... He says, Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, announced that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. However, that's Paul's view, not Jesus' view. Jesus, in his recorded teaching, never spoke of himself as a lamb. If we're to go by the recorded self-understanding of Jesus, we have no need to insist that he was slain like a lamb in order to avert God's wrath. If we're to accept the picture of God given in the teaching of Jesus, we have no right to assert that God really killed all the firstborn sons throughout Egypt, except where he saw that a lamb had been killed. The God who is proclaimed by the Bible taken as a whole, 
In other words, he's saying you got to you got to read the rest of the Bible in the light of what Jesus said. And Jesus didn't teach God was like that. Jesus taught God is love. Uh, the Bible, done taken as a whole, uh, doesn't teach that God is a God who is a butcher, like Pharaoh, who ordered all the Hebrew boys to be thrown into the Nile River immediately after birth, or like Herod, who tried to kill Jesus and killed all the babies in Bethlehem and surrounding area. God's not like that. God would not send judgment. Uh, rather, <clears throat> he says, uh, So I ask whether it is the necessary meaning of atonement that in and through Christ crucified, God substituted himself for us and bore our sins and took his own loving initiative, he's quoting Stott, to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his son, when he took our place and died for us. He says, that's what Dr. Stott says, but what do the scriptures say? I cannot find Dr. Stott's theory taught plainly anywhere in them. If it is the heart of the gospel, is it not extremely strange that it's not mentioned in any of the gospels? Well, he's right. You don't have the atonement, as I've discussed it, and as Paul spelled it out, and as Peter spelled it out, spelled out in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have allusions to it. Uh, you have uh, John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You have Jesus saying, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost and to give his life a ransom for many. But you don't have it spelled out in intricate detail like you do in the epistles. Does that mean that Jesus didn't believe he was the Lamb? Or that he was fulfilling prophecy? Or that uh, the Old Testament was true, etc., etc.? That God had to be approached through the blood of the Lamb? Of course it didn't mean that. Jesus upheld the authority of the Old Testament. Totally. When you read the Gospels, read his attitude toward the Old Testament Scriptures. It is written. And... Uh, a basic principle in interpreting the Bible is to realize that Jesus often taught things in germ, seed, beginning, that he intended to be developed by his further teaching through the apostles, uh, and uh, so on. You have to assume that Peter totally misunderstood uh, Jesus, uh, and uh, etc., if you take the position that Jesus never... And believe these things about himself which they taught about him. Well, you see a liberal perspective on it. You know, the idea that God is holy, he judges, he has to be approached through Christ, there is no other approach, that's always been offensive to the liberal man and always will be. But that's biblical Christianity. I'm reminded of the old covenanter. You know, the Scottish uh, were persecuted at one point very severely for preaching the old gospel. And uh, some of them covenanted together that though it meant death, uh, that they would stick to the old truths and proclaim them. They had to hide out. They were hunted like fox and uh, uh, other animals. And uh, one poem uh, uh, has one old Scottish covenant speaking to his daughter. And he goes like this. There's an old gospel. Nay, lassie, there's nay lamb of God. 
There's nay altar, nay lassie. There's nay covenant blood. Folks don't want the cross, lassie. They're cutting down the tree. And nobody believes in it but fools like you and me. But we do believe in it. That is the heart of the gospel. And it's pictured throughout, old and new. And God gives a great picture here of the way of salvation through the blood of the Lamb. Well, the Lamb was to be sacrificed. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. That was the 14th day of the seventh month. When did Jesus die? 14th day of the month of Nisan, that same month. When did he die? In the evening, all the congregation came together. But you know, it wasn't enough that the blood be shed. The blood had to be applied to each house. The sprinkling of the blood. In verse 7 of chapter 12, it says, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the house wherein they shall eat it. They were to take that blood of the lamb and they were to strike it on both doorposts and then they were to strike it on the upper doorpost. I just made a cross, didn't I? Isn't that interesting? And uh, he says, When I see the blood, I will pass over. You know, that lamb's blood could have been shed, but if it wasn't applied to the doorpost of the house... The angel of death would have gone in. Christ died, but if his blood, if the benefits of his death didn't apply to you personally, he might as well not have died. That destroying angel will ultimately come to you. We must apply it by faith. They had to believe. They had to believe that God would pass over. And they had to act in faith and apply it. We had to believe that Jesus was God become man. And that he did die for our sins and he rose from the dead. And we have to commit our lives to him in trust. Trusting him is my approach to God. And in surrender to him as my Lord. True repentance. Let's go into three homes back that night. It's the night when all of this took place. And we're there in Egypt. And we move about in Israel. There's a solemn air. We go into the first home and here the family seems... Pretty careless. We noticed that there was no blood over the door as we go into the home and everybody in is eating and drinking and uh, they're feasting on the lamb, but they haven't put any blood up. And, and we say, uh, y'all seem mighty joyous, uh, happy, go lucky. Uh, didn't you know the angel of death is coming at midnight? And they say, oh, 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 we heard that rumor, yeah. Yeah, you know, Moses... You never know what Moses is going to say. He's out there in the desert and saw this bush burning, he says, and heard voices coming out of the bush. You never know what Moses is going to say. Uh, God is a God of love. He wouldn't send any destroying angel. Uh, nah, uh, we, we're not worried. Well, they have faith, don't they? They have faith in a God who doesn't exist. There's no such God as the God they're trusting in who doesn't judge. They've created a figment of their imagination, an idol. And they act like he's the true God. We go to the next home and uh, we notice there's blood over the door and on the sides of the door as we go in. And the family is looking very solemn. They're all gathered around the table and they're wringing their hands. There's a lot of crying. And, and we say, what's the problem? And they say, 
while the angel of death is coming at midnight. Haven't you heard? And this is our oldest son here. We're very concerned. We said, well, didn't God provide a way to escape? Yes, he said, if we'd put the blood over the door, he would pass over this home. Well, don't you have the blood? Yes, we have the blood. Well, what are you concerned about? Well, our son hadn't been real good. Uh, he's, he hadn't done a lot of things he should have done. He's done some things he shouldn't have done. Well, we leave there and we go to the next home and, and there's the blood uh, on the door and we go inside and the family's gathered around and they're feasting, their shoes are on, their loins girded, their staff in their hand and they're singing to the Lord and praising the Lord and we say, aren't you concerned? Don't you know the angel of death is coming? They said, oh yes, we, we know he's coming. Well, uh, uh, what about your son here? Well, we've got the blood. Oh. But has your son been uh, an, an ideal boy? Has he ever done anything wrong? Oh, <laughs> he's been a boy. Yeah, he's done things wrong. <laughs> uh, well, uh, aren't you concerned? No, we're not, we're not concerned. Why not? Well, we've applied the blood. And God said that he would pass over. We rest on his word and he rests on the blood. We... We have assurance there, don't we? I received a letter from a young lady recently who had come in for some counseling. She says, because I could not pinpoint a definite age time of my belief in Christ, I was easily confused about my salvation. Your answers came to me very assuringly and clearly. They helped to simplify in my mind the issues I was struggling with. Shortly thereafter, I felt ready to get on with a Christian life. I was given to live. Now I can tell you that I'm growing in my life in Christ more than I ever dreamed imaginable. She has assurance. She knows. She rests on God's promise that if we believe in His Son, we have everlasting life. If we really surrender our will, really put our trust in Him, there's real change in our life evidencing the reality of our commitment, faith that's bearing fruit, and that we have eternal life. Now, we go back to the second home where they were wringing their hands over their son and, and they're, they've got some paper and pen and they're, they're writing. We say, what are you doing? They say, well, our son hadn't been as good as he should have been, but he has done some good things and we're listing those. And they list them and then they get a stepladder and they go up and they nail it up beside the blood, the list of the good things their son has done. What is their faith in? Is there faith in the blood? No. If we trust in the blood of Christ, we trust in it, period. Not Christ plus anything else. Christ alone. Faith in Christ is faith in Christ alone. Just as I am, without one plea, except thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. That's the way we come to Jesus Christ. Well, in Egypt that night, in every home there was either a dead lamb or a dead oldest son. God does judge. You see the shedding of the blood, the supper on the lamb. In verse 8 of chapter 12, They shall eat the flesh that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread. And bitter, with bitter herbs shall they eat it. The, they would eat the lamb 
having appropriated Christ, we now feed on Christ. We gain strength for the journey daily as we abide in him, as we look to him to empower us daily. And uh, they would eat it with bitter herbs. This probably speaks of the, the sense of sin, the repentance that were to accompany this. Uh, we receive Christ, we trust Christ, but we also grieve over our sin and we turn from it in true repentance. The unleavened bread speaks of putting any sin out of our lives. Leaven became a symbol of evil. And you read in the New Testament where Paul is talking about it and he says, uh, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed. Let us keep the feast, not with the leavened bread of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We put sin out of our lives by his power. The two don't go together, trusting in Christ and continuing in sin. And the evidence that I really have made a commitment is my life begins to change. Their dress, their loins girt, the staff in the hand, the shoes on their feet. They were pilgrim people. They were getting ready to move through this world on their way to the promised land. We are pilgrim people. This is not our home. And we need a pilgrim mentality toward this world and the things that this world offers. All of this was to be set up as a memorial in verse 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it, a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Well, of course, uh, they did that. 1,400 years later, they were doing it. And they're still doing it, as we read about the young Jewish girl and the celebration in her home. Of course, we don't do it. Because we live under the new covenant. And that Passover meal was changed into the Lord's Supper. And we don't offer the lamb anymore. The real lamb's been offered. Uh, we tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We break the bread and we drink the wine and we show forth, we picture the Lord's death until he comes. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Drink all ye of it. Partake. By faith, we feed on Christ by faith. As we trust Him, as we surrender to Him, we are appropriating His death for ourselves. What about it? We, the Israelites, with the blood applied, or we are Egyptians, carelessly going about our way, not knowing that the destroying angel is headed our way. Which are you? Do you believe the claims of Christ? Do you believe that his blood was shed for our sin? That he was God become man? He rose from the dead? Do you believe that? Have you applied it? Have you put your trust in him and surrendered your will to him? Has your life changed as evidence of that? Do you think all this was a coincidence? Fourteenth day of the seventh month, fourteen hundred years in the evening... All these amazing details that fit so intricately and so perfectly. Could anybody have designed it that way? No way. No way. God planned it and then had each piece in the plan fall in place. What about your firstborn son? What about your children? Are they under the blood? There's a poem that 
someone has written about her children. She says it like this. Beneath the blood-stained lintel, I with my children stand. A messenger of evil is passing through the land. There is no other refuge from the destroyer's face. Beneath the blood-stained lintel shall be our hiding place. The Lamb of God has suffered our sins and griefs he bore. By faith the blood is sprinkled above our dwelling's door. The foe who seeks to enter doth fear that sacred sign. Tonight the blood-stained lintel shall <clears throat> shelter me and mine. My Savior, for my dear ones, I claim thy promise true. The Lamb is for the household. The children save you too. On earth the little children once felt thy touch divine. Beneath the blood-stained lintel thy blessing give to mine. O thou who gave them, guard them, those wayward little feet. The wilderness before them, the ills of life to meet. My mother love is helpless. I trust them to thy care beneath the blood-stained lintel. Oh, keep me ever there. The faith I rest upon thee, thou wilt not disappoint. With wisdom, Lord, to train them, my shrinking, my shrinking heart anoint. Without my children, Father, I cannot see thy face. I plead the blood-stained lintel, thy covenant of grace. O oh, wonderful Redeemer, who suffered for our sake, when o'er the guilty nations the judgment storm shall break, with joy from that safe shelter may we then meet thine eye beneath the blood-stained lintel, my children, Lord, and I. What about your children? That uh, Jewish lady speaks of her family. And she puts it like this. As this Passover ends, I leave the table rejoicing that Jesus, my Passover lamb, has obtained eternal freedom from sin and death for me. But my rejoicing is dulled by sadness. My family is celebrating a ritual they do not fully understand. With tears in my eyes, I listen to my family sing the closing prayer that says the following year, may we all be in Jerusalem. I pray instead, Father, in the following year, let my family see your heavenly Jerusalem that is promised through your Son, Jesus. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, do you believe that Jesus was the Lamb? Has the blood been applied to you? Have you personally surrendered your will to him and put your trust in him? What about your children? What about your parents? What about your family? If you've never genuinely made that commitment but would like to do so today, pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I need protection from the destroying angel. I realize that I'm a sinner. And I thank you for being the Lamb. Now, Lord, I trust you to apply your blood to me, to forgive me based on your death. And I surrender to you, purposing to obey you. 
come into my life. Amen.